Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Discipline Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today I am thrilled to share our guest, David Thompson. David is the president and a partner at Wicklander Zolowski & Associates, the world leader in non-confrontational interview and interrogation training and advising. David is not just a professional investigator. He's not just one of the world's premier interview and interrogation trainers and consultants. David is somebody who has dedicated himself, his entire professional career, to advancing the industry of interview and interrogation. He's constantly pursuing a further education. He's constantly looking for academic experts to partner with, research scientists to partner with, legal experts to partner with, other experts, investigative interviewers to partner with. As he sets out to ensure that every time an investigator sits down to have a conversation with somebody who may have made a regretful decision, they are using moral, legal, and ethical acceptable means to have that conversation and obtain the truth. David is someone who has influenced court decisions around the country. David has influenced Supreme Court decisions. David is somebody who works with organizations to make sure that innocent people have the opportunity to get out of jail when they've been convicted based on or largely based on false confessions. His perspective comes from his life journey, growing up in New York, his investigative training, supporting disabled children, working in both the private sector and the public sector. I really am thrilled to share his ideas, his insight, his education with you so we can all continue to learn how to properly connect with somebody, encourage them to truthfully share sensitive information with us. Now, before we jump into the conversation, we do need to thank our sponsors. First, Humatel. Big thank you to Dr. David Matsumoto and everybody over at Humantel for supporting our podcast. Since 2009, Humantel has been providing industry-leading training in accurately understanding the nonverbal communication we're presented with every day. Their training, both delivered in person and online, is designed for business leaders, professional negotiators, business development professionals, parents, of course, investigative interviewers. But it is solely designed to teach us how to accurately understand what we're seeing in any given situation so then we can interpret it within the context to understand what somebody's likely thinking or feeling at any point in time. I can't recommend his training enough, haven't taken most of it myself. So I really do recommend that anybody who's looking to really dive in deeper into understanding how to accurately read and interpret nonverbal communication, head over to humantel.com and check them out. Also want to thank Emotional Intelligence Magazine and their founder, Brittany Nicole Connor Savarda, for supporting our show as well. Emotional Intelligence Magazine is a one-stop shop for emotional intelligence resources. They have articles, videos, podcast interviews. They have their own authors. They aggregate content from other places on the web as well. So as all of us are looking to continually increase our emotional intelligence and our ability to connect with others, again, I highly recommend you head over to Emotional Intelligence Magazine. And then we want to thank the International Association of Interviewers and their entire leadership team for supporting this show. The International Association of Interviewers exists to provide professional interviewers, investigative interviewers from all backgrounds, all industries, all sectors with the resources, the training, the opportunity to connect, develop, and evolve to make sure, as I mentioned earlier with David, that interviewers are constantly have access to 
the best resources, the best perspectives, the newest legal updates, and the moral, legal, and ethical techniques it really takes to sit down and have a conversation with somebody so they commit to sharing the truth with us. So for all the professional investigators who may be watching, of course, we recommend that you check out the International Association of Interviewers. Thank you all again for joining us. I now present to you my conversation with David Thompson. Good morning, Dave Thompson. It is really good to see you, man. How are you? I'm wonderful. It's a good morning. It's sunny in Buffalo. So that's a first for like six months, I think. So I feel good today. Is it above 35 degrees? It's above 35 and our Buffalo Bills are probably going to beat your Patriots again this upcoming season. So I figured I'd get that in before you have a chance to do edits on the podcast. That, that's totally fine. I'll leave it in. I won't edit it out because after 20 years of suffering, you deserve to get that shot in. And speaking of shots, I do notice how you are prepared for the potential that the Patriots might shock you with the win because you have your bourbon strategically placed under your Buffalo Bills helmet. So in case the Bills don't come through, at least you're prepared for either outcome. Yeah, celebratory or potential depression, either one. Always. <laughs> I will. I will say this. I'd been. A, I think. I think I've been to Buffalo three times. All three times were before you and I initially met, and after going for the first time, I had a new appreciation for Bills and Sabres fans. Like. And I, I don't mean this to be negative, just showing up to the city for the first time and realizing like, wow, now I can see why their teams mean so much to them. So yeah. new that can go a lot of direction. Loyalty is important, right? I think one of these towns that people, people love the city, they love each other and they love the sports and, and we're all Ted Lasso fans. I got, I've got hooked onto this. Have you watched Ted Lasso yet? Cause we can talk about his communication style the whole time. I have not. I feel like I could just go on LinkedIn and search Ted Lasso and get like 4,000 memes of other people talking about his communication style. I haven't. I, this much hasn't changed since the last time we hung out. I go out of my way not to watch TV. <laughs> I'm not saying I don't. Like I'll watch sports and history related programs and stuff like that. But I feel like if I start watching like a series, then I get invested and I have to watch all of it. Right. And I have other things I need to get done. Yeah, I think that's a commitment issue. We can talk through that today. <laughs> so so we've been back on for 10 seconds and you've already taken a shot at my team and diagnosed me. Right, right. Maybe it hasn't been too long, man. Right. Maybe it hasn't been too long. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it is great to, to be back and to have a conversation with you again, man. Um, if people are wondering what's going on, we work together for a number of years. We've got a, a large shared background. And for me personally... Not only are you one of the people that I was really interested to get on to this podcast, but you were really the guy that I wanted to kick this show off with. I wanted you to be guest number one from the very beginning. And that was intentional because when I think back to the conversations we've had, honestly, what I learned from you during a lot of our conversations and the passions I've seen you develop and the, the initiatives that I've seen you take on in your world and in the, in the world of interview and interrogation I honestly believe that you were one of those guys out there at the tip of the spear that are driving for very important changes, updates, evolutions in the industry and doing so in a way that really balances the need to get the truth and resolve investigations. I mean, that doesn't go away, but doing so in a way that allows people to really maximize the moral, legal, ethical aspects of the process and being extra careful for people that might be maybe 
it might be easier for them to be victimized during the process, I guess, could be the best way I can say it off the top of my head. So I guess the first question, just to get us rolling today, would be what really lit your fire for ethical interrogation techniques? Well, first, I appreciate what you just said. I mean, that that, that means a lot. And yeah, we've had a lot of conversations and every everything that Wicklander Zalowski has done, I'm going to go with WZ for the rest of this because it's probably a lot easier for people to, to comprehend. But everything our organization has done um, has really been a team effort. I mean, you've been a part of a lot of these conversations as a certified forensic interviewer. You know, for 40 years, the goal has been how do we kind of advance investigative interviewing and non-confrontational interviewing? And when we say, when I say at least interviewing, generally we're referring to the context of sitting across from somebody who has information they don't want to give you. Maybe it's a, a victim or a complainant. Maybe it's a witness. Maybe it's a suspect in a crime or a policy issue or whatever it might be. Um, so I think having being grounded in ethics and having a, a standard has always been the lifeblood of, of WZ and CFI, which is part of the reason CFI was, was created. But in the recent several years, one of the things that kind of lit my fire to your question was, uh, like most people, getting stuck watching Netflix and watching the Making a Murderer documentary. And I saw the interrogation of Brendan Dassey. And for those of you that haven't haven't watched, go commit at least 10 hours of your of your life to watch this. Um, especially if you have kids, it's important to to watch. But I watched the interrogation of Brendan Dassey. And as I saw it, like most people thought, well, this is not this is not the way that interviews are supposed to be conducted. Um, not only do we probably have a false confession, unreliable information, but we're also interviewing somebody uh, who's vulnerable from an age and intellectual capacity. Anyway, so as, as I watched that and went back to our organization and thought, hey, if we say nothing about this, right, if we just kind of ignore it as a leader in the space of investigative interviewing, that's just as good as blessing this and saying this is acceptable. And so that for me kind of triggered this we have a responsibility when we have such a platform is to make sure that when people are conducting interviews, no matter what space, is not only they're doing it ethically, but we're incorporating science and research into what we're doing, and that we're providing investigators with the right tools to be aware of what they're doing. So I think that that's part of the problem. It's not always, you know, ill-intended investigators. It's maybe they're just unaware or ignorant to what what's really happening in that room. I think that's so many great points in there. And I want to come back to the Brendan Dassey thing in just a minute. Um, but I don't want to come across as we're starting this conversation is that, you know, here we are, we see each other as these white knights in this world of interview and interrogation. That's not the case. Like the vast majority of interviewers, public and private sector, are doing a great job under difficult circumstances, encouraging people to share sensitive information under vulnerable circumstances in the face of consequences. And that can be extremely difficult on any number of levels. But it's also a human endeavor on both ends. Right. So you know, how is how are both parties feeling on a given day? How Literally, how much sleep did they have? How much stress are they under? What else is going on in their lives? What training or tools do they have available to them? So it's not making the assumption that most interviewers do a bad job. It's knowing for a fact that most interviewers, most of the time, do a great job. But what can we do to continually, and this is one of the things I love about your focus, integrate the science and integrate the research and integrate the updates. So as we continue to learn, we continue to go back to what we're doing to continuously give everybody the best tools, skills, and perspectives to be respectfully successful in such a difficult endeavor. Yeah, I think, and what's interesting is operationalizing the word success. Like what, what is a successful interview? And if you translate that 
to a sales conversation, right? Think about the same thing, right? Historically, an interview, people think, well, you need to get the confession, right? You need to get the, I did it. Otherwise it's unsuccessful. And in your traditional sales kind of metrics, it's you better close the deal. You better make a sale or you're not successful. And when you're, when your primary aim is to get the, I did it or get the sale, any human walking into that situation feels like, what do I have to do to persuade somebody? How do I convince or coerce somebody? Right. But if we can change the goal, which is what we've really been focusing on is to get more information is to get actionable intelligence is to build a long lasting relationship. Then in the interview space, maybe you get a confession, maybe you clear somebody from a crime, maybe you just get two or three more details and the person cooperates with you through the investigation. And in the sales space or business space, maybe you don't make a sale today, but you've built a trusting relationship with the client that you have a, a much longer lasting relationship. Maybe a year from now, they come back to you or, or, or you build on that. And so I think that's one thing when you look at the human element of the, the interviewer, the leader of this conversation or whoever that might be, is what pressures are put on them and what is their goal when they walk in that conversation in the first place. And that's a great way to say it. How are they incentivized either by their employer or themselves to your point? Because their employer might not incentivize them to get the confession, but maybe that's how internally they have. And on the other person as well. And one of the things I love that you said at the beginning of all of this was this all relates to, to, to oversimplify it, victims, witnesses, and suspects. And I would, I even say clients as well, because a lot of times the clients that would hire us wouldn't want to often be forthcoming with everything at the start right. of a conversation, because obviously there's things that they might want to protect a massage as they're telling us what happened. But you can have a victim for any number of very real reasons that's hesitant to share information and rightfully so. The same with witnesses, the same with suspects. And for suspects, that could be a suspect who is involved or a suspect who's not involved. Right. And being able to understand that I'm going to skip past something and try to remember to circle back to it, but you touched on incentivization. You touched on what are people's goals? What are they looking for going in? In your experience, in your expertise, what is the difference between focusing on getting the truth and focusing on getting a confession? Yeah, that's a good, an interesting differentiator. And even, you know, you think confession is my goal is to walk in and get the, I did it. And the problem, there's a lot of problems with that, but the initial problem with that is that means we walked into an interview with a presumption of guilt, meaning anything other than a confession would be a failure, which means whether you did it or not, I want you to say I did it. And now some people may think, well, if you know the person's guilty, then of course that should be your goal. The problem is we don't actually know that. We don't have ground truth most of most of the time. And too many people watch Law and Order and CSI, and they think you've got all these different things that tell you know what somebody did. But the amount of cases I've seen where your evidence is wrong or misleading, um, I've seen forensic evidence. I mean, there's to be like bite mark evidence was something that people relied on. That's that's kind of that's been debunked. There's been everything that you could think of that would say this is the guy, right? That committed the crime is being open to alternative theories of it. And so, getting away from confession seeking. When you go to this concept of the truth, here's the other issue with the word truth even, is if we listen to, or somebody, hopefully they're still listening to us talking, we've been talking for a few minutes, hopefully it's still entertaining, but let's say they stopped right now and they got a phone call and so they're driving and they said, hey, what, what are you doing? I'm listening to this amazing podcast, Mike Reddington, and oh, what do they talk about so far? Well, that person, if you had 10 people make that phone call, you're probably gonna get 10 different responses. And it doesn't mean 10 people are lying. 
it's they each took something different away. They maybe they they like you, they don't like me, vice versa. Maybe they don't like both of us. Maybe there's one point that stuck with them. And so our goal is instead of confession seeking, instead of finding out uh maybe what is the the ground truth of what happened, because unless you were there and witnessed the crime, you probably don't know. Instead, it's how do we obtain actionable intelligence? How do we obtain information that we can go maybe uh corroborate or disprove? And when that becomes the goal, it it relieves some of the pressure from the interviewer. It opens up the mind of the interviewer. And consequently, which is kind of interesting, we can talk through this, it actually changes the perspective of the interviewee because the person sitting on the other side is going to pick up on the fact that, hey, this person doesn't believe me or they're skeptical or they're accusing me or what are they going after? It changes that whole that whole dynamic when you change the goal of the conversation. I do want to talk about that more. And I want to break it out even beyond interview and interrogation. Because you and I have had many conversations about how we apply everything we're talking about in our business conversations, in our family conversations. If we are making large purchases as a consumer, we're, we're applying it there as well. But that same mindset of I'm not trying to win the conversation. I'm trying to gain, you said it, actionable intelligence to move the pieces down the board, to put myself in a position to make the best available decision and to help the other person save face and protect their self-image along the way. So go ahead. Let's go ahead and talk about that from the perspective of where we would use the subject or the person that we're talking to. How does this approach impact them? Yeah, I think, well, let's talk about that that concept of long-term relationship versus this kind of immediate gratification, right? If, if my goal is to walk in, get the I did it or get the sale, either way, I'm going to say things or do things that are probably not authentic or genuine. One of the, one of the leading causes of wrongful convictions, false confessions specifically is using the false evidence ploy, meaning lying about evidence. So an investigator creates this kind of uh, perception or explicit statements that they have evidence that they, that they don't have. I've seen the same thing in a sales conversation, right? A salesperson is so focused on this immediate sale that they overpromise, knowing they're going to underdeliver, right? Knowing the engineers haven't developed that yet, or that there's no way from supply chain they're going to actually get it in the next three weeks, or whatever it might be. But they're they're so focused on this immediate goal that they take liberties to make that decision. So that the subject now, right? They walk away from that conversation, uh, maybe feeling taken advantage of because they felt like they had no other choice but to say yes or I do or whatever. And now a few weeks later, those promises are not met right? That the trust is, is broken. And so maybe you made the sale today, but you're not going to renew that contract next year. Maybe you got the, I did it. And even if it's a a truthful confession, you're probably not going to get additional information from that, from that person. I remember to give you kind of a personal example. Um, a long time ago, I, I lived, I originally was born in Buffalo, New York, and I had an opportunity to move to Philadelphia for a job, for a, a promotion opportunity or whatever. Um, and I remember thinking that at the time in my life, it didn't make sense to move. Um, I was in a relationship. Neither of us really wanted to move from Buffalo. And I remember getting a phone call from the boss. And I, I, I talked to my wife at the time and said, are, are we going to do this? She's like, no, I, we're, neither of us were ready to move. So, okay, well, when I get on the phone, I'll let her down. My boss, I told her, I said, I'll let her down and I'll, I'll let her know I'm not going to be able to make this move. Fine. So I get on the phone. I'm, I'm with my boss at the time and at my office. And I came back out and had to tell my wife we're moving to Philadelphia. And it, it was one of those. It was a great, and I, I don't regret it at all. It changed my my whole kind of career trajectory. But 
it was one of those conversations where afterwards I was like, I can't believe I just said yes to this. And I, I might've had some excitement, but also regret, but it was, it wasn't coercive by any means, but she did a great job pitching it versus building maybe a long-term kind of relationship of what that decision would look like. And so all of that to say is we have to think about, you might win, win in quotes and putting it if you're not watching, but the conversation today, but what is that doing for the long-term relationship uh, with that person that you're working with? And to hear two professional interviewers talking about building long-term relationships is probably the last thing anybody would have expected today, but really that's what it takes. If you want someone to share sensitive information under vulnerable circumstances in the face of consequences, structuring, even if it's for you and I, somebody that maybe we're only going to talk to for two days of our entire life. And then when that investigation's over, we go our separate ways unless we bump into them some other time. If we are not entering into that, those conversations, considering it, this is a relationship. This is what we're building. There needs to be this connection, this mutual understanding for us to move forward. We're not going to be successful. Yeah. Well, and I, sorry to cut you there, but I, I think that point is so important. It's not just, it, you know, me and you versus me interviewer and you subject, right? It's this relationship and reputation in the sales space or the business space altogether. People have a reputation knowing how you're going to, you're going to bump into Mike at the conference stay away, man. He's going to try to sell to you something in the first five minutes, right? You're going to build the same thing, the same thing as an investigator, whether it's your human resources partner, internal affairs, a prosecutor, a judge, people get this reputation of, well, well, how did they get to that end results, right? Are, are they always using these kind of coercive tactics or techniques? They're not doing a, a, a thorough investigation before or after. Are people always recanting the confession after? And the same thing when it comes to negotiations or business conversations is, and you know, you dealt with plenty of vendors and sales folks in your life. Like you've got people that, you know, great, they're calling me. That means they're trying to sell me something versus, they're just building, you know, developing rapport and building a longer term commitment with you. All great points. We've talked at length about the importance of rapport and empathy during the interrogation process. And I don't even want to say interrogation, interview process, victims, witnesses, suspects, the whole, the whole piece. Like even talking with clients, people who are tangentially involved. Rapport and empathy throughout the entire process is critical. We're not going to be define success however you want. We will define success as obtaining the truth and moving towards a, a, an ethical resolution. But you're not going to be successful without that. I would love it if you could do two things as I break, you know, a cardinal rule of asking questions. I'm going to ask you a, a compound question. Sure. Can you help us understand why it's so important? And then while you're doing that, can you share a story? where either building rapport or demonstrating that unexpected level of empathy got you, I don't want to say an unexpected result or a surprising result, but one that seems more difficult going into the conversation. Yeah, that's a good, a good compound question, except the second part of the question is more difficult than the first, which is going to distract me answering the first question. <laughs> um, You're a professional. Yeah. You got it under control. Yeah. No, I think when, first of all, like rapport is such a buzzword. Right. We're going to say it probably so many times in the next five minutes, it's going to sound like the word doesn't make sense anymore. Uh, I think it's understanding what rapport is to understand how important it is. Um, they just they just in the last several years published a, a lot of research under what's called HIG. So HIG is the high value detaining interrogation group. And there's a series of studies and I have a book behind me that I was going to use as a prop, but it's to, I have to turn around and then it's a the whole thing in the back of my head, you know, uh, but you just got a haircut, dude. You look good. Sharp. 
Uh, the book is in a compilation of studies is called Orbit. And a lot of what we're teaching now when it comes to rapport is based off of this research, which was people looking at interrogations, figuring out which one of those, first of all, were, were successful, meaning which ones resulted in getting information and cooperation from the interviewee. And what were the common denominators to drive that success? And rapport was fundamental. And when they looked at rapport, it wasn't just, all right, two people talked about football for five minutes or two people talked about what the weather was like yesterday, right? That's that surface level. You bump into somebody at the coffee shop and you're waiting in line and you have to kill time. Uh, rapport was built off of some more foundational principles like being honest, um, being empathetic, giving that person some autonomy in the conversation, right? Giving them the power of choice, uh, being adaptable. So if somebody's resistant or aggressive or passive, making sure that you as the interviewer are adaptable to that situation. And so what they found was when you have these kind of founding principles and you develop a foundation of rapport, regardless of, to your point of what type of conversation this was, this could be a you know a business conversation with somebody. When you when you found uh, build a foundation of that, you build some form of trust, and that trust can lead to cooperation. That cooperation can lead to whatever this ultimate goal was, is of getting information or or building a long term relationship or or whatever that might be. Um, and what was kind of surprising with that is they were looking at counterterrorism interrogations. And so for anybody that's listening, you think, well, you know, I don't want to be soft in a conversation, or I don't want to be. You know, I don't have to hug the person to be their best friend. What they found is in these very serious, difficult, high emotion, potential conversations, it wasn't about being somebody's best friend. It was about being genuine, about honest, empathetic, giving autonomy and, and being adaptable. And so anyway, I thought that that's important first is to kind of define what rapport looks like. Um, to your second question, I've got probably I'm sure between the two of us, a million stories we could think of where um, I get one example, but where countless times you begin an investigative interview with somebody who you've maybe investigated for months, a year, whatever it might be. And you have this unfortunately predisposed opinion of this person is a uh, committed a crime. You know, they're a bad person, criminal, a thief, uh, whatever, sexual harassment, discrimination. You got all these ideas in your head. And then you talk to them as a person for 10 minutes and realize, okay, they're a good person who, who maybe really just did something stupid because they were having a bad day. And I've had plenty of bad days um, the amount of times I've said something to somebody and immediately thought, I'm going to hear about that for the next six months. I shouldn't have came out of my mouth, right? But the, the quick example I'll give you that comes to mind is um, a couple of years ago, right before COVID, whenever that, 42 years ago, right? Whenever that was, there was a um, a guy I had opportunity to meet who was installing credit card skimmers into gas station pumps across the country. So you go pump your gas. And he was making duplicates of your credit card and using that to create other credit cards to go to a store, buy a bunch of the third party, you know, like Visa gift cards and basically money laundering. He was doing quite well, tens of thousands of dollars every week, tax free. Um, and eventually he gets caught. He was uh, arrested by the Secret Service. He confessed. He gave up information on some of his other um, co-conspirators in the case. At that point, I had a time to sit down and talk to him and do an interview, not to get a confession, but an interview to figure out what did it feel like being interviewed? What did it feel like being investigated, being accused and whatever? And there's a lot we can talk about uh, from that conversation. But one of the things that kind of stuck with me is he had been interviewed by law enforcement several times and didn't give up any information. 
until one specific agent picked him up and talked to him. And I asked what was the difference. And he said, he got to know me first. He said, he cared about me as a person. And we can go through details if you want. I talked to him for two hours and we did the interview at a, in a hotel in Miami. And I walked him back out uh, to his car afterwards. And as we got off the elevator, he, he was emotional. He was tearing up. And this whole time I'm thinking, right, just people hearing this story, this is somebody who's stolen tens of thousands of dollars from people. He's a criminal. I can't believe you do this. He's, he was getting emotional, kind of tearing up. And he said, I just want to thank you for actually getting to know the why behind, behind everything. He had grown up in a kind of a, a gang atmosphere. He felt like he had to do that. He had no protection. He felt alone and he kind of gotten trapped in this, in this situation. So anyway, it's long answer to your question, but I walked away from that thinking, man, every, everybody is a human first, right? And then maybe these other decisions come as a result of pressures, but I wouldn't have known that unless I took the time to get to know him first. Let's um, dive into that for a few minutes. I know you talked to him for two hours. Those types of interviews, as you well know, are gold mines because we all live in, it's, it's easy to fall into, as you said, the stereotypical mindset, criminals are criminals, good people are good people. That's not the case. I would say that we're probably both in the same boat that well over 90% of the people that we've ever had the opportunity to speak with were good people that made a poor choice based on the situation they were dealing with at the time, right. which does not absolve them of accountability or consequences. But had that person been in a different situation, they would have made a different decision. And there are good people, plenty of them, that thankfully didn't have to make that decision and may have if their choices had been different. So embracing that universality of the human experience and understanding how we all sort of ebb and flow with what life gives us along the way. What else did you learn from this guy that's helped you evolve or update your perspective, not only on investigative interviewing, but really, as you've mentioned before, challenging conversations as a whole? Yeah, I'll try to keep it kind of high level to a few things I took away. One question I asked him is, um, you know, how does he feel about law enforcement? And which was interesting because him and the Secret Service agent were getting along great, right? He, they were kind of working together. He was being a cooperative witness. But he explained to me his first interaction with law enforcement was when he was like 11 or 12 years old. He skipped school and he's whatever, walking on the sidewalk and a patrol officer pulls over and sees him and starts asking him, you know, why isn't he at school or whatever. And and his story that he tells me, he said, you know, the officer made him kind of sit down on the curb and was yelling at him. And he, he goes, he started flicking me in the ear. And he said, I know this is stupid. I was young, but to me, that was like torture. I couldn't believe he did that. And so he, he went on to tell this long story about how anybody now from that specific department wearing that uniform with that badge for the rest of his life was an adversary, was somebody that like was an adversarial relationship, was combative. And his immediate perception, if I, if I get pulled over by, you know, X police department, these guys are all jerks, right? These officers are all terrible, which isn't true. But when you think about that from a investigator standpoint, a salesperson, a business leader, human resources, whatever, is sometimes when we enter these conversations, we unfortunately are responsible for the reputation of our entire lineage, right? Of our department, our predecessor, and you may be encountering some of that resistance that you don't even know about. And so when you develop rapport and somebody says, oh, here we go, HR again, I can't believe I had to talk to these. Last time I talked to HR, they did this to me. Well, not you have something that you have to help overcome there. So I think I learned a lot about reputation, um, a lot about active listening, which again is a buzzword, but it's not just being quiet. 
It's actually listening, using the person's name in response, using specific terms or statements that somebody said. And when you respond with a question, using the same exact words or terms so that you can verify I was listening. I didn't translate it in my head and come up with something different. Um, that kind of reassured him that he could tell a long story and I was listening. And I think the third, the third piece I took away was, now of course, this is different because I wasn't there like with handcuffs that he was going to walk away and get arrested. But his level of comfort to talk with me was, I thought, in- incredible. And I think it's because of the the atmosphere that we we created, right? I was very, it was very open. I was transparent <clears throat> about here's what the conversation is going to look like. I gave him autonomy. Hey, if you don't want to talk about something, just tell me. We can skip it. No big deal. And all of these different elements of rapport, which were genuine, I think helped create this conversation that for we I could have talked to him for eight hours, but for two hours was pretty much giving me anything that you may want to know about somebody with with that experience. Also critical. And it's not, it's more common than people would imagine when you approach the conversation that way. I say this with nothing but love and respect, but I, I have to begrudgingly give Chris Norris credit. And we'll have, we'll have Chris on at some point, I'm sure. But he's got a wonderful confession that I don't know if, if you guys still use or not, where a senior executive in a, with a sales background confesses to over a quarter million dollars of documentable fraud. And right before he confesses, he looks at Chris and says, first, let me say thank you. And when he's done thanking Chris for how he treated him, he turns around and admits to a quarter million dollar worth of verifiable fraud. Guy Bobby we used to work with tells a story that when he was working overseas for the military, that he had done an interrogation, obtained a confession that was sending an American serviceman to jail in Japan for sexual assault. The guy turned around and shook his hand in the courtroom as he was being escorted out of the courtroom and sent to jail. For me, we both came up in the private sector. I remember the first time I was walking to the food court in the mall and was passing somebody I previously interrogated and thought to myself, and here we go. And he literally smiles, shakes my hand, thanks me for the conversation and saying that he's been on a different path ever since. So treating people that way, especially when they don't expect it or they've never had it before, you can almost have that awkward piece in the beginning of the conversation as they're trying to figure out, wait a minute, is this real? Like, is, is, is he really giving me this respect? Is he really treating me like an equal human being? But once they see that, you use the term authenticity, once they see that, the entire dynamic of the interaction changes. It is now a relationship. And what they'll say and do for you will often surprise the hell out of people. Right. And I think it's really important when you said authentic, if you if you go um, too far on that line, when I say too far, that means you're not being genuine or authentic. It has the opposite effect. So you know, whether it's again, an interview or a business conversation, if let's say you're building this level of trust in Brendan Dassey's case, we mentioned earlier, you've got investigators saying things like, I'm not a cop right now. I'm a father, I'm a dad. And if, if you were my kid and, and now, now it's going from authentic and genuine to coercive. And there's this, there's this step over the line, the same thing with, um, and I've had plenty of business conversations with people where it's like, they, they're on the phone with you and they want to try to sell you a service, a solution, whatever it is. And they're building this rapport stuff. Okay. But they're checking the box of rapport. It's not, not authentic. And they're asking you about your personal life or whatever. And then you get back on the phone with them two weeks later and you know, they, Hey, Hey Dave, how are the kids doing again? Well, I don't have any kids. You clearly weren't listening last time. And it's one of these conversations where it's like, is it authentic rapport? Are you fulfilling the promises that you, that you delivered? 
or are you just trying to kind of sleaze your way through a conversation? And so I think that's that's an important line for people. Be like be yourself, be honest. And when you're honest and transparent, as much as this may seem counterintuitive, when you give somebody the power of choice in a conversation, they're actually more likely to make that right decision. For sure. And just a silly example is how many times have we both either had somebody ask us if they could get up and leave or tell us that they wanted to get up and leave. Right. And 100% of the time for us in the world of non-custodial, largely non-custodial interviews, our answer is, yeah, go ahead. Right. And they literally nearly, had it happened once, never do. He's like, oh, wait a minute. You're going to let me? Well, then I guess I'll sit here and stay. So yeah. giving people the opportunity to choose. So they feel like, like the difference between commitment and compliance. Compliance is obeying a command. Commitment is feeling like you have at least some ownership of the decision. And the more people feel like they have at least some ownership of the decision to share information in a conversation, they're committed to it. It's more likely to be accurate, in-depth. They're not going to recant it after the fact. They'll write it down for you. They'll expand on it. And giving them the power of, of choice is such a huge piece. Yeah. If you, and if anybody, even from a customer's perspective, right, if you're going to buy a car or a house, but the last thing, and, and I've been there where you're at the dealership and you're, you're not really sold on the vehicle. You're nervous. Oh, the rate's a little higher than I wanted it to be or the house or whatever it might be. But the salesperson gives you the, hey, you got to do it today. It's the last, your last chance. It's the last one on the lot. Or, hey, real estate, it's crazy right now. There's six other offers on this house. You better sign this today. And people might make that decision of, okay, fine, I'm going to buy it. I don't want to lose out on that opportunity. The salesperson is collecting a commission. The customer is now the next day, maybe having some regret of, oh, I wonder if I could have negotiated further. Oh, there's three other houses I wanted to look at. And so even though as the, the salesperson, you might lose the maybe that immediate sale, but if you give somebody this power of, hey, here's the information you have. Yes, there's six other offers on this house right now. There are other houses we can look at. I want to give you all the information. Giving that person some time to think about it and make sure that choice is, is theirs. If they don't buy that house, you've at least built this trust. They might buy a house that costs even more two weeks later, right? Or they're going to refer friends to you to be their customers later. And so again, it's this kind of ripple effect of get away from what is the what is my primary focus of the I did it or buy this or do this project for me? It's instead, how do I develop a foundation of, of rapport and trust that, that'll roll into all these other successful uh, interactions? Such so And it all goes back to prioritizing relationship over outcome. If I treat people the right way and I do the right thing, then the outcome more often than not will begin to take care of itself. Right. And if it, right, I don't, I, we've always talked about this. There's no magic wand, right? There's no, there's as much as Mike Reddington is an, an expert in executive you know, education and discipline listening. And you don't have a magic wand that every salesperson is going to close a deal or every business conversation is going to result in every employee loving the company. And I, we don't have a magic wand that walk in and every person is going to confess to a crime or whatever they did. And so what we're trying to do is at least establish uh, the construct of a conversation, a relationship that puts people into the most effective means to get that information with ethics and science kind of grounding, grounding that approach and trying to build a longer term reputational relationship, right? Whether it's with that person or with surrounding people to have, to have further success. So yeah, it's not, I don't think, like you mentioned in the beginning, we don't have this, um, the, what would you call us white knights walking in as the, as the heroes to this process. 
it's simply looking collectively at experience, research, and what what works and defining what works and putting it all together. Which ultimately sounds like how anybody should it should approach any endeavor, especially a communications endeavor, which is much on the line as especially what you guys do most often in your line of work. Um, I just totally lost the example I was going to use. Thank you for continuing to talk and knocking me out of my train of thought. That's what I do. Let's, <laughs> let's do this. When you are preparing for a conversation where you're going to ask somebody to share information with you that it might not be their priority to share. What are your typical, what are you focusing on from an approach standpoint to make sure you are in the right mindset and you're giving yourself, strategically speaking, the best opportunity to obtain that information? Strategy, right? Preparation. I think um, historically, there probably wasn't a lot of that when you look at, you know, decades ago, or unfortunately, even right now, it's I'm going to go walk in, I'm going to wing it, and I'm going to get it done, which is a terrible approach. Same thing for um, in the, in the I know I keep saying sales, and it's a wider scope than that. But I think about these salespeople I've worked with that have done sales for 30 years. And they're like, yeah, just give me a client list. I'll, I'll get it done. I'm going to make 30 phone calls today. So instead, let's look at preparation. I want to know what are the uh, what are the potential goals of this conversation? Meaning, is this something that am I trying to prove or disprove information? Is there certain evidence I do have that I want to try to get their perspective on it? Um, I, am I just trying to develop a relationship for a secondary conversation? Right? What's what's my goal? Um, I think second, and not in no particular order, but what are the reasons that the person I'm talking to doesn't want to help me achieve that goal? Right? Why might they be resistant? Um, is it you mentioned like victims before, they have a um, embarrassment. Do they fear that I won't believe them? Have they had a negative interaction with people in my field or my department before? Um, if it's somebody who maybe if they give up information, it's going to result in consequences. Not everybody's biggest fear is being arrested. Maybe it's losing their job. Maybe it's losing income. Maybe it's in, you know interviewing somebody for sexual harassment. Maybe they're embarrassed to tell their significant other at home what they've been doing at work. And so trying to identify what are the points of resistance? And then uh, just off the, the top of my head, the last like, two things would be um, what evidence or information do I have, right? So do I know what their budget is? Do I know what their historical purchase purchase kind of information has been? If it's a, an investigative interview, do I have video surveillance? Do I have fingerprints? Do I have an eyewitness? And the last piece is then based all of that information, what approach am I going to take? Because there's not a one size fits all approach to these conversations. So is this one where if I'm talking to somebody like Mike, it's better that I allow you to lead the conversation and it's very much on you. Is it one where this is better of a dialogue? Is it somebody who I think would prefer to hear me out first before they answer? And, and there's different approaches that you might use. So being having that adaptability, but that I think those are the first few things I would look at when we're talking about strategizing an interview. That's a great list. That's a great list. I feel time and time again, especially working with executives around the country, that when we talk about the opportunity to let other people lead the dance, it's almost like a personal affront to them. Well, I'm the one in charge. I'm in control. This is my time. This is my conversation. Well, let's get one thing straight. If you need information, they have it. You're not in control of this conversation. You never have been. You never will be. So if we have a good strategy in place and we've got a good idea on where we want the conversation to end, 
where we allow our counterpart to start the conversation is very helpful to them. And we can use it to help us because we're not winging it because we do have that strategy in place and we can adapt. And that adaptability is so key. You know, are we forcing everybody else to capitulate to how we want to communicate? Or again, are we taking that outcome mindset and applying or adapting our communication to fit what they need? Yeah. Two quick practical kind of examples of that. A lot of my career, I did pharmacy investigations, so drug diversion cases. So you're talking to pharmacists, maybe doctors, pharmacy technicians, and so people that are 100% smarter than me when it comes to pharmacy, I can't pronounce the name of the drug they're stealing in the first place. And sometimes you're dealing with ego or people out there dealing with you know narcissistic personality. If I enter those conversations, trying to lead the conversation, I'm, I'm not going to get anywhere. And instead allowing somebody to almost educate you during the interview, allowing them to have the floor implicate themselves, maybe, or give you information. It's kind of like, um, Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise, and a few good men, right? The the code red example is you've got somebody allowing somebody else to kind of communicate and give up, give up that information um, unknowingly, maybe implicating themselves, right? Potentially. But, but yeah, letting somebody else lead the conversation, there's nothing wrong with that. The um, in fact, that might be more helpful. Some of the the last thing I want to say with that is some of the researchers behind this study I mentioned earlier you know, reference this concept of you're not being soft, but strategic is allowing somebody else to lead or talk in the conversation. You're actually getting information. And the practical example, other one I want to give you is in a certain department, police department that was doing investigations in prisons and jails and prisons, they're focused on kind of gang related crimes. And they put them through some interview training. And one of the main takeaways was don't interrupt, ask open-ended questions and allow people to talk. And they watched themselves on video doing interviews before this training and then interviews after this training. And I got a chance to sit in and listen to these detectives explain their experience. And they said they couldn't believe how many times they interrupted people before the training when they said, this is so simple. Our whole goal is to get as much information as possible. And all we kept doing was stopping people from giving us information. And so understanding that you might have to course correct, put up guardrails, but if people are talking, maybe you want to listen. Go figure. Right. <laughs> That's a great example. And another one where how many times have people either come to us or other people we know that we've worked with and said, so-and-so has such and such a background. They're never going to talk. And certainly I'm not going to sit here and say they all do. That would be a, a significant overstatement. A surprising majority of the time, the interviewer comes out with a signed multiple page written explanation of right. everything that had happened. And often when we're asked, well, how did that happen? What did you do different? I was nice to him. I listened. Right. I gave him a chance to talk. I didn't cut him off, interrupt him, accuse him, threaten him, do all of these things. So it was literally an entirely different communication experience for that person, which then led them to share the information with us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and not just listened to take notes, but listened to... Uh, understand and then to ask follow-up questions based off of where they helped you kind of guide the conversation versus you assumed where it was going to, where it was going to end. One of the, you touched on this earlier, but you didn't really dive into it. One of the interesting facts or not facts, but I guess sets of circumstances that we used to operate under, you still do is that for people to call now you used to be us for helping them with an investigation. They're not calling us because they have evidence and this thing is buttoned down and ready to go. 
They're calling us because they've got multiple suspects, no evidence. Everybody's already been interviewed. By the way, that was probably a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago, at least. They still haven't had a resolution. It's now become socially and or politically untenable in their organization. So now they're asking somebody from WZ, from your team, to come in and help figure out exactly what happened. And in those conversations, when you don't have evidence, you literally never know when the next thing they say is the one thing you need to connect the dots, find that missing puzzle piece and move the conversation forward. So in a lot of ways, we literally are hanging on every aspect of the communication we're receiving because we don't know when and where that value is going to be presented to us. It almost always happens in an unexpected time in an unexpected sentence or story. And we're just like, there it is. I can use that. And that's how we resolve it. How did you develop the patience and focus to hang in conversations that way? Uh, well, that's a great example. I think it's um, changing your focus from confession because I've been there before and one million percent have been in these conversations where I'm like, I got to interview 30 people and I better find out who did it or I failed. And when you do that, you enter 30 conversations with a presumption of guilt. Somebody's tricking me. Somebody, I got to get the, I did it. And you, and that results in a lot of these, these issues instead changing your goal of how do I get more information to either help prevent this from happening again, to give the organization more just information on their operations. Maybe there's little bits of information that can piece together and actually do an investigation, which is the whole, the whole concept here. Um, and then the other thing that, you walk away with is, and for anybody that's a business owner or a leader that's listening, you don't always need to, finding out who did it is great. That's not always going to be the case. But if you have, here's a simple example. If you have somebody who's living on a, in a, some suburb of speed limits, 30 miles an hour, right? And you've got this, this person, grandma sitting at her house and there's somebody driving fast, Reddington's driving in his Mustang 80 miles an hour every morning to get to work, right? And she sees this car and it's loud and it's dangerous and there's kids playing outside. So she calls 911 and says, somebody's got to do something. This guy's going to kill somebody. Right? Now, I don't, maybe, I don't think she needs to see like Reddington face to the pavement, cuffs behind him. But if she at least saw a patrol car drive by once in a while over the next few days, she feels like, okay, the department cares. They're there. I called and they're there and they're trying to do something. And so for business leaders that are listening or investigators or whoever, when you have these investigations, it seem like we're never going to find out who did it. There's no way. There's no information. At least showing your organization that we're going to ask questions. We're going to be present. We're going to respond helps improve or at least maintain some type of positive morale and engagement and also hopefully mitigates further instances of that happening because they see you're going to respond. So I think that to answer your question holistically is when you change your focus and your goal, it allows you to be more patient uh, to achieve those in the, in the investigation. That's a great illustration. Face down on the pavement handcuff might've been unnecessary, <laughs> but who knows, you know, maybe that's what she really wants to see. Yeah. Right. That's um, a wonderful illustration in our career paths, although similar are certainly different they're, they're not identical, but we have spent, the majority of our investigative careers in the private sector. And I don't know about you, but certainly to this day, the first questions I'll get, oh, you were in interrogation. Were you in the military? Nope. Were you in law enforcement? Nope. What did you do? Well, I came up in the private sector and then worked for WZ and trained all these organizations and worked with all these people. But it just, for me personally, it wasn't the path that I walked. I know yours is, is a little bit different. Um, 
for me, as I reflect back on working in the private sector, I feel like, especially as I translate the interviews that I, investigations I was a part of into the business world, there's a little bit more of a direct translation because they were non-custodial cases. Nobody had been Mirandized. People are free to get up and go anytime they want. You have these HR, ER policies kind of guiding the conversations that are typically even more restrictive than case law is. Um, And then we talked about the conversations we had where there was no evidence anyway, and we're trying to figure out how long this has been going on and who's with what. One of the things that I think surprised people the most when they hear about the interrogations that we used to work, you still do, is that it's our job to use investigations as a morale boosting tool. And I think that typically hits people like a bucket of water in the face. Like, I'm sorry, what? You're going to interview and interrogate people and they're going to feel better about it after? Well, yeah, I mean, think about your point. How many innocent people are upset because they either feel like it's been ignored or it's been dragged on forever? They're happy to have the conversation. If we are able to identify who did it and remove them from the organization, great. If we're able to identify operational opportunities, great. If people are sharing information with us that might be unrelated to the investigation, but still valuable to them in the organization, great. So there are all these opportunities to move the ball forward and to have an impact based on the relationships we create. And these investigative interviews are just another tool to do that once you update your approach. So I would be curious from you as you look back, and I know you spent a little bit of time in law enforcement, you've done some other things as well, but as you reflect specifically on your work in the private sector, how has that really helped to frame your approach to interview and interrogation and how you apply it to clients who are federal agents or in the military or in law enforcement? Yeah, that's a really good example, especially for people who have not been in that space or or business leaders who deal with conflict in their in their workspace. Um, each of these conversations, if every time you talk to somebody was to was because there was a fire, right? If every time one of the companies I worked for, I covered maybe two hundred locations like throughout Canada and like the Northeast U.S., which meant always either on the road or the only time you're in person in a location is because there was a problem. And what I've learned from that is when I walked into a store or picked up the phone, I had to call that store. It was, oh, great. Who's getting fired today or who stole something today or who did whatever. And when I was able to kind of change that landscape, I started to put just on my agenda, I don't remember, five, 10 stores a day, whatever it was, because I'm driving and having this windshield time by myself. I'm going to call these stores and just ask, how's it going? What's going on? Anything I can help with. And so it started to change the dynamic of my relationship with people which allowed me to have a several tangible benefits. It could be if I did an investigative interview now, when I first brought somebody into an office, it wasn't, oh God, Dave's here for this problem. It, Dave's here and he's been an ally the last couple of years. It also increased the amount of um, tips I would get from company, from people calling and saying, hey, I wanted to reach out, like, you know, I saw this, this, and this. Those people may not have called me a year prior because they either didn't know me, they didn't feel comfortable. I was a scary right home office person. Um, so it developed that that kind of relationship of, of informants, basically. Um, and third, it changed the whole dynamic of um, in the public sector, it's police community trust, right? And in the private sector, it was kind of trust with the corporation or with um, you know the people at headquarters and been connecting the two. And so I've learned from these interviews and the process you referenced is how, how important, again, we kept saying the word relationship, but how important it is to 
change the focus of a conversation so you're building again more long-term commitments. We've got a lot of people that come, as you mentioned, from law enforcement, federal agencies, about half of our business, we teach the public sector. And so they're interviewing, most of their interviews are non-custodial. They're in the field on a, on a patrol car responding to a domestic violence incident or responding to somebody who's you know protesting in front of a store or shoplifting or whatever. And so same concept is when they're interviewing with uh, maybe a shoplifter in front of a retail store from an organized retail crime incident, their interaction with that person can impact all the customers watching it. It can impact that person themselves, the loss prevention team wanting to call that department again. And by the way, 30 people have their cell phones out recording that interaction. So the entire community is going to define their reputation by that. And so I think it definitely translates between between the two. But all, again, it all comes down to what is your goal of the conversation and how are you managing your own emotions throughout that, that intention? And the goal makes it easier to manage the emotions. Yeah. Because if the goal is I have to beat Dave Thompson today, when that doesn't appear to be working, I'm going to get more emotional. If yeah. you start to push back, well, I'm supposed to win this conversation. I get more emotional. If the goal is how do I have this conversation in a way that gets me closer to achieving my long-term goals, builds relationships and benefits the stakeholders, for lack of a better term, like the surrounding community. Now it's easier to maintain my emotional control because these are the goals I'm trying to achieve. I'm not just trying to win the conversation. Yeah, that's a great example. Teamwork is one of the kind of the foundations, again, of rapport. Uh, one of the methods we teach is the cognitive interview, which I know you're very familiar with. And when you develop this kind of foundation of teamwork, especially with maybe a victim, right? Somebody who wants to give you information, but they're maybe hesitant to give you information. If my goal is I need to figure out who did it, you give me the details. Their goal is protect my reputation. I don't want to be retaliated against. I want to keep my job. You're fighting against each other. But in the interview method is being transparent in the beginning. Hey, I wasn't there when this happens. Uh, My job is to be as good of a listener as I can, ask you questions to allow you to help jog your memory. Um, and your job today is to try to give me as many details, even if they're relevant. And you go through this kind of foundational teamwork piece, uh, both people should be feeling satisfied and not taken advantage of versus what you, what you just referenced. Spot on. One of my favorite examples to use, an investigation I worked in Oklahoma, where I feel like I worked harder to help a witness determine it was okay to share information, what she knew. And then help her come up with a plan to basically smuggle it from her desk, the evidence that she had collected, smuggle it from her desk back to the interview room because she didn't want to know anybody. She didn't want anybody to know that she had it. Once we had done that, I didn't I, I worked harder to get her to do that for me than I had to work to get the guy to confess once we had obtained this extra evidence. So not just assuming we, the silly term I use for it is the entitlement trap. Like, I don't want to feel like I'm entitled to this information. So I communicate in such a way that causes me to fall short because I didn't think of some of these things that you talked about and I didn't focus on the relationship. What does somebody else need to feel and experience? Yeah, I think that's, that's really good. I like the term because a lot of interviewers, you know, feel like, yes, they're entitled to information. Um, they're also, nobody went to school to be a, to know how to be a good victim or how to be a good witness right? We've never been in that, in that situation. Maybe even if you have, you don't know how somebody's going to react and you can't assume that somebody would react the way you would react. And so trying to understand what's driving them or what's pushing them back will help you just become a better communicator overall in that, in that situation. That's a, that's a huge one right there. How many people expect that 
other people will react in the same situation, similar situation that they will. Or there are certain ways that people should react to certain things. How many times have we heard that in seminars we've taught and investigations we've done? We've been working with other agencies. Well, I interviewed this guy and he didn't react the way an innocent person should. Well, I'm sorry. Walk me through how an innocent person should react again. So whether it's business conversations, parents, teachers, just because somebody didn't react the way we would or didn't react the way we expected, that should cause us to, to further investigate to steal the word. What's their background? What's their history? What's their mindset? What are they afraid of? What are they experiencing? That could all influence how they react. Yeah. And one simple thing, well, simple example, not a simple thing that I keep mentioning, we've incorporated science into a lot of what we're teaching is this evolution of research on trauma-informed interviewing. And so understanding the impact that trauma could have on the interviewer and the interviewee, right? People respond to trauma differently. Some, you know, usually our memory doesn't work very linear. So if somebody experienced something traumatic, they often can't tell you from start to finish how an incident occurred. They're going to grab bits and pieces of information. Uh, sometimes the information's wrong, right? Maybe timestamps are wrong. Maybe the color shirt somebody was wearing was wrong. But again, when they're experiencing trauma, they're not focused on what time it is. They're focused on maybe survival. Um, somebody's behavior during the interview, all of a sudden it might be triggered. They might start to laugh while they're telling you that they were a victim of sexual assault, but maybe that's the way that they're coping with it. Uh, maybe they start to cry, but they're lying to you, right? So it's like you mentioned, it, there is no uh, black and white, how everybody should respond to each each situation. And just it's understanding the variables that are at play and how unfortunately sometimes the interviewer, the leader maybe of that engagement might be responsible for somebody's change in behavior. Let's talk about that. That is true for investigators. It's true for parents. It's true for sales professionals. It's true for leaders. From your perspective, your education, your role in investigative interviewing, business leadership, and beyond, how can people raise their awareness of the effect they are having on their counterparts' communication? I think um, if if capable to have another person listen or watch or observe, maybe when a sales call together, maybe it's a, a session you're leading, but asking for feedback is really important. Um, you know, having a, a witness in the room and an investigation and afterwards, not just, you know, say, Hey, did you get good notes? But also asking, Hey, what was my, my tone? Like, what was my face? What did that look like? How did I respond? If you go backwards for a second, the reason this is important, uh, there's, there's research that shows that people, the interviewee is often able to identify when the interviewer started to disbelieve them or started to become accusatory. And if they're able to identify when you made that switch from kind of friendly, open-ended questions to more direct or accusatory. As soon as you do that, that naturally puts the person in defensive resistant mode, right? Yeah. You lean him back and say, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sharing this information with you. And so what that tells us is if they can identify when your behavior changed and it causes them to be more resistant, we, that's the opposite of our goal. And so it's the same thing in a sales conversation. If I'm talking to a salesperson, I know they're a salesperson. I get it. They're going to, that's the goal. That's the reason we're even interacting is to sell something. But if I can tell that conversation translates or transitions into, I need to make the sale today. I want to start talking about pricing right away. That's when all of a sudden I'm starting to think, what excuses do I have? How can I get out of this conversation? And so, yes, you got to make the transition maybe at some point, but it's how you do that. So if you can have somebody else listen in would be great. If you're able to record yourself, 
um, which again, be careful what state you're doing that in, but in, or without consent, it's a problem. Uh, but at WZ, we've been recording for 40 years and being able to watch ourselves, listen and, and observe how we interacted. And then the last piece, and there's probably other ways, but this might seem kind of uh, ironic, but asking the person you're talking to, maybe you have customers you've worked with for a long time, ask them for feedback. Um, you mentioned interactions you've had with people you've interviewed before. I've had conversations afterwards. We're sitting maybe in the interview room and I've asked, you know, what, what happened today that made you feel so comfortable to talk to me? Or maybe it's a week later, we interact and asking those questions. And it's amazing what people will tell you that you didn't even realize that you did or did not, did not do. So having some self-awareness and self-reflection is definitely important. Hugely important. And having, it's great if you're in the position and you can ask the person that you were interviewing, you know, maybe you're waiting for law enforcement to show up or, you know, the vice president is reviewing the written statement. So you're there. You know, that's always the most fun 25 minutes, right? Carrying on the conversation after that. But even if for somebody who that might be leading investigations or having leadership performance management conversations in their own com company, maybe that's a question that HR or another leader can start asking. So I see, you know, you do an investigation, you hand it over to HR, HR is now talking to this person to verify a few things and give them the news that they're now free to go employ at another company anywhere in the area, should they see fit. You know, that's an opportunity for them to ask, hey, I, I see all this information you wrote down here. I'm curious, what about your conversation with Dave made you feel so comfortable sharing it? So that's kind of a twist, but it's the same thing. And I know I'm preaching to the choir on this one. We love to say that what behavior changes isn't nearly as important as when the behavior changes. So having that contextual awareness of what just said or happened. And number one, we get away from the whole truth and lie, reading behavior for truth and lie, just talking about it for somebody's comfort level. So if I'm talking and all of a sudden somebody appears to be uncomfortable, just having those self-awareness to say, wait a minute, did I just say or do something? If I walk into a room and somebody's comfort level changes, having the presence of mind to say, wait a minute, is that my fault? just led a session and one of the guys in there owns a law firm and he used to be a litigator and he was kind of chuckling a little bit talking about how his team looks at him as a litigator and they always feel like they're being deposed even though he feels like he's being super nice and we laughed about reputations and how many times have I been told stop interrogating me when I wasn't interrogating somebody but one of the little adjustments we talked about making, because he talked about a couple employees specifically, was, yes, they sit at a desk in an office that you own. And yes, you're probably in your right to walk into their office anytime you want. Fine. But what if you walked up to their office the next time and stopped with your toes up against the thresholds? You didn't actually step into their office. And you actually reached into their office and knocked on the door from the outside. Now they look up and I know you can just walk into their office, but now if you say, I know you're busy, may I please come in for a moment? I have a question. Just changing how you enter the conversation resets so much based on the relationship, everything you shared today, that now we're having a better control of creating emotional reactions that are productive as opposed to unintentional and unproductive. Yeah. The the way you begin the conversation, you set the tone potentially. Um, I mean, even for us public speakers, which obviously you've done a great job of being a public speaker. It's, I've learned so much by listening to other speakers on what to do or what not to do. Mm -hmm. And I've seen, I've seen instructors or speakers, especially when they're, when they're new, they're almost, um, 
set themselves up for maybe a negative evaluation or something afterwards. So maybe, for example, they might kick off a session and say, oh, I can't believe I got the session right after lunch. I'll do my best to keep you awake. Well, it's like the self-deprecating, which is okay, but it's also this concept of um, I'm giving you all the permission that you, you're supposed to be tired for the next hour. You're supposed to not want to be here for the next hour. Um, and instead of maybe just kick off with a story or a joke or, or ignore that that concept. I've had uh, public speakers say things like, well, uh, I'm not usually used to speaking in front of a group this this big, so we'll see how this goes. And it's almost like this, I'm trying to give a premature excuse that I may not do well, when in fact, they may do excellent. But what you're doing is putting in people's minds, hey, they're probably not going to be great. The best they can be is good. And you're setting the tone for that entire conversation. So however you kind of initiate, um, even thanking somebody for giving you their time, right? If you walk in the, the office and say, I, I really appreciate you giving me some a few minutes to ask you a couple of questions, that person hasn't actually chosen to give you a few minutes just yet. But when you thank them for those few minutes, you're again giving them the, this perception of autonomy that they have a choice to say no, but they've already made the good choice to say yes. And so, yeah, the, those first few seconds, the way you introduce yourself or interact can really set the tone for the rest of the, the meeting. It's enormous, enormous. Dude, I could keep this conversation going all day. I'm super appreciative of you sharing your time. I know you got a lot going on, a lot you're doing with WZ and beyond. I'd like to ask you a real quick question. We've talked a little bit about WZ and I'll explain it a little bit more in the intro, the interview and interrogation training that you do, but you're not wearing a WZ shirt. You're wearing a CFI shirt. So can you give us kind of a quick rundown on what it means to be a certified forensic interviewer? We both, I think, touched on it during the conversation, but can you share that a little bit for people that might be curious? Yeah. Um, so WZ, as I'm sure you'll go through, is an investigative interview kind of communication training firm. We really focus on training, um, maybe it's private sector or public sector, but how to conduct these investigative interviews or de-escalation training, those types of things. Um, on the side of the International Association of Interviewers, so IAI, uh, we have a designation called the CFI, Certified Forensic Interviewer, of which Mike is one. Uh, the CFI was created to create a set of standards and uh, guidelines and a demonstration that you have an expert level of knowledge of interview and interrogation kind of tactics or, or techniques. It doesn't necessarily mean that you taking it are a great interviewer, but you uh, have a level, a high level of proficiency of knowledge of interview and interrogation. Um, right now it's built into like 15 different domains. So you might ask questions about, or the test might ask questions about legal case law. It could be different methods that exist. Uh, it could be policies, procedures, or whatever. And right now we're in the process of uh, updating it for the most current amount of research. So it's pretty neat. We've got developmental psychologists involved to talk about interviewing youth, right? Juveniles or people with vulnerabilities. We've got people uh, from federal agencies involved on how some of these tactics relate to maybe Department of Defense interviews or governmental interviews and from a global standard. So really neat concept. Um, to learn more about certifiedinterviewer.com. Uh, and what we've seen, again, to kind of bring this all back together, is a certified interviewer is learning some of the skills and knowledge that translates well outside the interview room. So we've seen academics, business leaders, and really anybody that has uh, professional conversations benefit from something like that. How do, you, how do you use the truth to your advantage? In any conversation, in any setup, when the truth matters, how do you use the truth to your advantage? How do you, what techniques are best to help obtain it? And then once you have it, what are you doing next? And so much of that is people 
you mentioned it earlier. They might watch a little bit too much TV, a little bit too much Hollywood. They might have this kind of rigid expectation on how that works. But you'd be surprised what will happen when you help people save face, protect their self-image. You have a strategy behind what you're doing and where you can go with it. I know, I know you got to wrap up, Mike. I just this last thing I think is important because I know you do a lot of training programs, and as as do we. Sometimes people think communication training, like training is more of just this, I'm good at it, so I don't need to go to, to school to learn it. But what we've seen a lot is it's kind of like if you've got a if you're gonna go have surgery and you've got a doctor who graduated from med school 30 years ago, you are praying that that doctor has maybe read a couple research studies uh since then, gone to continued education classes. And we have both learned in both of these kind of disciplines, communication is a really powerful tool. You're getting people to maybe do things they weren't thinking before that conversation. And so staying educated on what's the research say, what's the science say, what's the law and ethical guidelines say is, is really important. So if uh, somebody's listening and you think you're just a good communicator, because if you communicated for 30 years, it would be like me being a good golfer for golfing for 20 and I'm terrible at it. So education is just really important, but I thought that was just an important takeaway uh, for me, what I've learned throughout this whole experience. I appreciate that. Um, WZ, you've talked about that's still w-z.com, certifiedinterviewer.com. You mentioned for the CFI program, IAI as well. What about Dave Thompson? If people are like, you know what? For a guy with a Buffalo Bills helmet behind him, Dave sounds like a really smart guy with a lot to offer. I'd like to learn more about it from Dave. Where can people go to find you? Yeah, WZ's website is probably the easiest, but LinkedIn is probably the best way to connect. There's a couple Dave Thompsons out there, but if you put Dave Thompson CFI, you'll probably find me most most easiest or I'm uh, all over Twitter. So D Thompson WZ, but plenty of ways to stay, stay in touch and connect. And I'm happy to help and support everything you're doing, Mike. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. And I'll have all the links in the show notes. I'll put links to Orbit in the show notes as well. If there are any other high-end resources that we didn't get a chance to talk about today that you want to make sure I share, shoot them over and I'll make sure that they're in there. Um, really keep up the great work, man. We didn't have time to get into the work you're doing with the Innocent Projects. We didn't have time to get into some of the false confession examples you've been working on, some of the specific research and evolution that you're driving in the world. Of course, we could tell case stories all day long. Uh, so we'll probably have to do this again at some point. But thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Thank you for sharing a little bit of time with me today. It was great to see you and I look forward to keeping the conversation going. You too. I'm going to try to keep my beard as nice as yours next time. But <laughs> we just got to get like one half of it to go gray. <laughs> yeah, I'll work on it. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. This is great. Great to see you, man. We'll talk soon. Once again, a big thank you to David Thompson for taking the time out of his schedule to join us today and share his experiences and his insights on the operationalization of empathy and rapport and contextual awareness and all of these techniques that are required if we want to establish sometimes surprising relationships with people under difficult circumstances, especially when we want them to share sensitive information. And that, that's not just true in the interview room. It's true in all of our high-impact conversations as well. So hopefully you got many lessons out of today that you can turn around and begin applying to all of your conversations. Thank you, David. We also want to thank our sponsors one more time as well, Dr. David Matsumoto and the entire team over at Humantel. Please head over to humantel.com to check out the industry-leading training on how to accurately interpret nonverbal communication. Scientifically researched, scientifically backed, can't recommend it enough, haven't taken the majority of it myself. If you are interested in further developing this skill set, head over to humantel.com and enter the code INQUASIVE25. I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E-2-5 to get a 25% discount off of all of their available online training. 
Big thank you to Brittany Connor Savarda and everybody over at Emotional Intelligence Magazine as well. Head over to EI-Magazine for all of their online content, everything on emotional intelligence that you're looking for in order to continue to develop those perspectives and understanding of what other people are experiencing and how we can better connect with them. And of course, everybody over at the International Association of Interviewers. Head over to certifiedinterviewer.com to experience all of the resources they have available. Check out the educational events they have coming up. And especially if you're an investigative interviewer, learn what you need to do to qualify, join, and get as much out of the profession as you can based on all of the experts and all of the resources that they're pulling together. Thank you all for taking your time to join us today. I really appreciate it. We look forward to seeing you next time. Take care of each other.